Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy class on the Dispossessed. This is class number three, as we uh, uh, are hoping to get through six, uh, the, the first six chapters now of the Dispossessed. Remember that next week we're not going to do additional reading. Um, I have no aspirations wholly to complete our discussion of the first six chapters. Um, so this is going to be our first pause in the reading. And I'm going to remind you again at the end of class uh, that I would love to hear any questions or thoughts that you guys have in preparation for um, uh, for next class session. Um, that should be a good time to uh, uh, to do some of those if we get a chance. And yeah, Arthur, thanks for reminding me. <clears throat> for those of you who want to participate in a live chat, those of you, especially those of you who are new, everything you enter into the chat section here in the webinar window tonight will come to me so that I'll be able to see it and uh, uh, respond to your comments and things. Um, but I want to kind of keep that uh, uh, clear of back and forth chat among students so that I can follow it and uh, uh, keep up with the things that you get, the observations you guys are wanting to make, and the comments that you guys are making about the text. So, um, so that's why I, always, I have that moderated, so that I, again, anything you type, I can see and I can see it right away. Um, but I won't show up for everybody else. If you do want to talk amongst yourselves, which I know many of you do on a weekly basis, uh, just go to MythGuard.org and to the Dispossessed page on the MythGuard Academy tab of the MythGuard.org site, and you will see at the bottom of the page a uh, uh, a link to the student chat room um, where you guys can talk amongst yourselves. So, okay, cool. Well, welcome back, as I said. Now, let's start off with some sort of announcements and reminders. Of course, the main thing that uh, is going on these days is our fundraising campaign, which is off to an awesome start. We're now just about two weeks in, um, and I've been giving you guys updates over the last couple of weeks. Remember, this class started the day before the fundraiser kicked off. So, um, and since then, we've now received uh, $19,000 in uh, gifts and pledges uh, so far uh, towards uh, towards our annual fund, the Signum University annual fund for this year. Um, that has just been, uh, I, I, I am always uh, really humbled by the generosity of our students and supporters and very, very grateful that you guys have enabled us to do what we have been doing and what we plan to plan and hope to continue to do. Um, we, you know, have had lots of ideas of how, you know, we always want to see if we can expand our programs and make even more available uh, to more people. And we are well on our way to being uh, being all set to do that here through this uh, through this next year, um, it's been a it's been a wonderful beginning. Um, so let me uh, let me just remind you of two things that are coming up uh, pretty soon within the next week. Essentially, uh, two more events because, of course, as you know, we have lots of special events celebrating the different programs that we run through Signum and Mythgard over the course of the year. Uh, the next one is actually coming up on Friday. Afternoon Eastern Time at 3 p.m. 3 p.m. Eastern Time. So this means it's not going to be in the middle of the night for the Euro for for Europeans, and this is going to be one of our thesis chats. So this will be a, a sort of a talk and discussion, a sort of interview style uh, discussion with Chris Swank, who is our first graduate ever, the first ever graduate of the Signum University Master's Program, and she's going to be talking about the work that she did uh, on her uh, on her uh, uh, her master's degree thesis. Um, which uh, has since been published, and she's now uh, enrolled in a PhD program. And you'll be able to hear about some of the work that she's been doing. And, and you know, uh, Chris is a wonderful uh, illustration of uh, sort of the Signum student, right? She's someone who is a, a, a 
really smart uh, really smart person who works in an academic environment but was never you know never uh, sort of an established scholar herself but really was interested in kind of taking that step and she you know through her work at Signum she has now you know, she's now a regular conference presenter and has gotten a number of things published and is, uh, is as I said, she's now on to, um, um, she's now on to a PhD program. So her story is just, a, 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 for me, a very wonderful kind of illustration of what we kind of set out to do. I, I've uh, been delighted to sort of follow her career. And of course, now we've uh, lately hired her to uh, teach on the Signum faculty. She's now one of our preceptors as well, um, which has been uh, which has been a lot of fun. And she's been she's been doing great. She's uh, precepting this semester um, uh, for uh, uh, Dimitri Femi's class, I believe, if I remember correctly. So anyway, that's been uh, that's been awesome. So be sure to to tune in to hear Chris Swank talk about what she's done, and you can sort of hear. Um, a little bit more about what the uh, Signum program has been accomplishing. And then uh, on this coming Saturday, we have a, a very big event, uh, which is the first session of our three-part seminar on A Secret Vice, edited by Andrew Higgins, Dr. Andrew Higgins, I should say, uh, and Dimitri Femi. Um, this is the first in our new seminar series, and I've explained this before, how, you know, I know with the shift that we've made in our academic program, which has been so exciting in so many ways with our new concentrations and, and the, the greater regularity and the offerings of our program. So for, for certificate students and master's degree students, our program has been very greatly enriched. But for people who just are wanting to audit and hoping for new courses every semester, it, there aren't going to be as many options available for them, and knowing this, and not wanting to uh, to to sort of deprive those students who have been such a such a vibrant part of our community uh, for years past, we decided to launch this new series of seminars so that we could have more, uh, you know, more of the, this kind of you know meaty study of. Tolkien and other fantasy and science fiction literature. Um, and not just with me. I mean, you guys hear from me a lot in the Mythgard Academy, but we wanted to be able to bring in uh, guest, you know, eminent guest scholars uh, to, uh, uh, to teach many of these, many of these, uh, of, of these seminars. So this first one, as I say, is on the very recently released book, A Secret Vice, which is, of course, a new edition of the essay, um, Tolkien's famous essay, A Secret Vice on Language Creation. Um, and contains a, a great deal of very original research that Dimitri Femi and Andrew Higgins did. Um, a lot of discoveries that they made, and they, they really sort of paint some 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 really interesting new parts of the picture of Tolkien's concept of of languages and language development. There's there's uh, there's um, a lot to be learned from that there, and they've done some wonderful work. So uh, you'll be hearing uh, from them. The first session is with Dr. Higgins, and that's going to be Sunday, October 9th at 4 p.m. Eastern. Uh, of course, uh, Dr. Higgins and Dr. Femi are both in the UK, so these, again, will be at Europe-friendly times. Uh, so, uh, uh, so yeah, so the first session is Sunday, October 9th at 4 p.m. Eastern. I hope you'll be able to, to join us for that. Now, we are with the... Um, so hang on a second. I meant to... Uh, I meant to give some to to give some links to make sure everybody uh, everybody everybody had these. Um, so let me let, let me do that before uh, before I before I forget. So this is the registration link. Um, if you want to uh, join, for, this is the registration link for Chris Swank's thesis talk on Friday, and uh, this is 
the registration link for the Secret Vice Seminar. If you haven't registered yet, everyone is welcome to register. Um, and the, so the other thing I wanted to explain, um, because I, with these new seminars, you know, I am bringing in people, and, and, and I mean, if you know anything of the history of Signum University, you know one of the things that, that really matters a lot to me is being able to, uh, to offer honorariums to people, to be, you know, that the, the laborer is worthy of his hire, and that's something that uh, I that matters a lot to me on an academic level to to make sure that we're really, um, you know, showing the the I, I just you know I, I try not to just twist people's arms and make them do things for free. So we're uh, we're we, we through the seminar series we're going to be paying uh, our guest lecturers. So we do we are asking. Um, for we sort of have a suggested donation, you know, like at the at the entrance to a to a to a free museum, a sort of a suggested donation. Um, it's not required. It's open to everybody. I hope everyone will feel uh, uh, free to participate and to download it afterwards. The recordings will be available, just like the Mythgard uh, Academy is. Um, so the access is going to be the same as always. Um, we just we, we have a suggested donation of twenty or twenty five dollars just to help us cover the costs of bringing in. Uh, our guest lecturers. Our goal is to raise two thousand five hundred dollars uh, for that seminar, and actually, um, we have a, sort of a really exciting opportunity there because a, uh, a very, very generous anonymous donor has offered to, who's very excited about the seminar series, has offered to match um, one hundred percent. All if we if we make our two thousand five hundred dollars, he'll he'll match it one hundred percent and give a two thousand five hundred dollar donation to help support Signum. So um, that's a, 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 a very exciting prospect. So we're sort of hoping to um, hoping to reach that. If you want to make a uh, to make a, a donation to help to cover the seminar series, there's um uh, you can uh, go, this is the event page uh, for here, and you can see there's a link on that page uh, to take you to the to the donation form uh, to help support the Secret Vice Seminar. Many people already have. We've already raised, I think, uh, about $800 or so towards the seminar, which is great. So we, we were off to a great start even before it's begun, uh, which is uh, which is really wonderful. So um, again, I hope you will feel free to participate. Um, but uh, you know, if you are moved to help to support it, that would be that would be awesome. Um, and yeah, Tomas, great questions. So everyone that Donations that are made to the to the to support the seminar are still counted, you know, within the overall Signum annual fund. It's uh, I mean, all the money goes towards Signum and to help us uh, to uh, to to pay our expenses. And of course, one of which with the seminars uh, is our guest lecturers. Now, um, it does mean Tomas that any donation that's made, whether it be to the Secret Vice sort of channel or whether it be to the general fund. Um, the same donor appreciation uh, uh, program applies to all. Um, so, and we will sort of add all of those together. So, if you give, if you, if you gave, you know, a donation to the general to the general fund, and then you also give a donation to the Secret Vice uh, seminar, then you know we'll add those together, and the the sort of the 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 level of the donor appreciation program that you're in will, will be the sum of those. So yes, Tomas, if you donate $100 or more total uh, to the annual fund, then yes, you get to be on the Council of the Wise and get to uh, get to nominate the books that we uh, that, that we'll be doing next in the Mythgard Academy. And all of our donors get uh, voting rights, so you have the opportunity to help to vote uh, on the next books that we do. Tom Hillman suggests, uh, he says, don't be a proprietarian, donate. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. Show solidarity to Sydney University. Absolutely. 
Um, uh, very good. And I'll just, I might as well, while we're at the uh, link distribution stage, throw that out there too. That's our general donation uh, link. Um, uh, you know, because I wouldn't want you to have to go hunting for that. All right. So that's where we are. Again, it's been very exciting. We're, we're, we're a, a third of the way to supporting the Secret Vice Seminar already. Uh, we're 40% uh, or so through what we need for the annual fund for the year. So it, things I've been, you know, it's already been uh, just a wonderful response uh, from all of our supporters. And we're, uh, you know, looking for your continued generosity and, and, uh, and certainly know that you guys have my, uh, uh, have my have my gratitude. Well, let's dig back into the dispossessed here. So, we ended last time talking about Sabul, right? And there's that moment which, um, as I mentioned last time, I found to be a really um, a really fascinating moment um, in chapter two or three. Chapter three, the second chapter in Uras. Right um, when he's having that conversation with the other physicists, and we've seen, you know, we we, we looked at this last time. Um, we saw, you know, several moments where they're clearly like speaking at cross purposes or just not really understanding each other because they don't really have the um, don't really have the framework because they make completely sort of wrong assumptions. You can see just that their their minds are kind of oriented in totally different ways. As for instance, the uh, the the Urasti just can't envision the idea that they don't have a government and or laws right it's just they, they, they can't parse that in their heads and we can see other things um that um uh that that uh Shevik can't parse either right um but then there's that really fascinating moment where sabo comes up and Shevik's relationship with sabo comes up and of course we've not seen it yet at that point Right, you know, so we've had chapter one, which is the one where he takes off in the rocket and talks with the doctor. We've had chapter two, which was his early childhood, both the the time when he was a baby and the um, at the time when he gets kicked out of the speaking and listening group, and the time that he locks his friend in the prison. Right, so we, that's chapter two. Chapter three uh, then is this time in 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 Uras when he's first there and talking with the physicists, and we see him kind of finding his way in Uras. And then chapter four is when we finally get to meet Sambo and sort of we see the beginning. Of his academic career now, um, so before we've actually seen it, we get these references to Sabal, and they, the Urasti, think or assume that they can totally read between the lines here, right? And they say that they're like, "Oh, you say no more. We totally understand the situation there, right? It's obvious. He's envious. He's been trying to take credit for your work, and it's a, it's a, you know, and and they even say it's Chafoilisk, I think, who says you don't have to pretend." Right? We know how people, I mean, you guys all claim to be different up there, but people are people, and we know how it is. Right? And at the time, in Chapter 3, it sounds like just yet another one of those things, like they, because they make very similar statements about the government. Right? But we know, we have already seen that, no, they seem actually to be wrong about that. Right? This seems to, that seems to be an example of, you know, a, an archic, uh, uh, society which just really can't comprehend an anarchical society and how it could possibly work. So when they talk that way about Sambal, it sounds like it's the same thing, right? That like the kind of solidarity and brotherhood that exists on Anaris is just, they can't parse it any more than they can figure, you know, than, than they can wrap their minds around the idea of women physicists, right? 
because again, we have so many examples of that, that it seems yet another. And yet, as we were already beginning to see in the passage we were, passages we were looking at last time, the uncomfortable truth seems to be that the Urasti physicists were spot on in their analysis of Sabol. Kind of surprisingly, or unexpectedly, it does not in fact fit that pattern. So you remember at the end of last time we were talking about the Iotic uh, dynamite physics books, right? And those physics books in Iotic um, that Sabo gives to Shevik the first time they meet, and he tells him to learn Iotic because he's got to be able to read Iotic so he can read the work of Iotic physicists, um, and that they're going to try to, they're going to, you know, be communicating with the uh, Iotic physicists. Um, and Sabo suggests, you know, and, and so you'll remember the sort of shocking suggestion that Sabo makes that they not reveal, that like he, he conceal it, right? Don't tell anybody. Don't let anybody else read the books. Don't tell anybody else that you're reading these books, right? That you're, that you're learning Yeah, It's supposed to be a secret. And that idea of like keeping a secret from other people, of concealing something from anyone, right? From the people around him um, is a deeply strange, a very counterintuitive idea for Shevik, right? And we so we saw that last time in the metaphor that Sabo made in order to try to illustrate or try to justify, really, um, his injunction for secrecy. Um, the, the, the metaphor that he makes is that they're like dynamite, right? Um, that no... It's not appropriate to share everything. If you sh if you had a bunch of explosive caps, right, and you shared them with every kid on the street, they'd blow themselves up, right? His implication there would seem to be that thinking of the good of society, of the good of everybody, you know, thinking in solidarity with everybody doesn't necessarily mean distributing everything, right? Um, that it's going to do that it's going to do harm if. Uh, uh, if you, um, <laughs> Arthur Harris says, mind-blasting caps, uh, thinking of uh, uh, baby Shevik egoizing about the sun. Yeah, exactly, something like that. Um, so it's 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 the it's for the public good, right? It's for the public good because that stuff is dynamite. The Ionic books are dynamite, right? And that idea, it's like, okay, maybe we can kind of get behind that. Maybe we can buy that. But it's really uncomfortable in a couple ways, right? On the one hand, it's uncomfortable because the thing, it's not explosive. What makes it explosive, right? What makes it explosive? It's, it's, first of all, they're physics textbooks that most anybody can't understand, right? As the narrator says, Shevik finds when he's reading the book, you know, when he's learning to read the book uh, that Sabo gave him, that it's not basic introductory physics, right? So even if it were written in Pravik, most of the people um, who might find it on the street wouldn't understand it. Um, of course, we talked last time about how it's not exactly so much the issue isn't exactly the physics, right? It's not the physics that's explosive. It's the language. It's the ionic that's explosive. But remember, that brings us right back to the conversation, to the argument that uh, that that Shevik was having with Tiran at the end of chapter two, right? When Tiran was suggesting that they, the PDC, the Uras the NRST in general, were wrong 
to tr that they were basically trying to prevent Enarasti from learning about Uras. And his argument was because they're afraid. They want the Enarasti to distrust, to just simply blindly distrust and hate Uras and the Urasti, right? Blindly without information, because the only information that is that is disseminated about Uras is very out of date and highly prejudicial, right? Um, what is what is Urus really like? Nobody on Anaris really knows, right? And so why, Tyrion was asking, do they want us to hate them? Why do they want us to hate it? Why are they trying to instill hatred um, in the NRSD towards Urus? Um, so he was suggesting something like a conspiracy, right? Something like a conspiracy that was working through the educational system in Anaris, and Shevik was violently opposed to this idea. Right, and you may remember his very, very strong uh, arguments, and we looked at some of those last time as well. Uh, some of his very strong arguments against that. Right, that's just that's not that's not that's not how it is. And yet, even in the best possible interpretation, right, even if we completely trust what Sabo says here, his argument boils down to the same thing. It would be dangerous to let other people learn Iotic, right? The common person, you know, the person, people on the street are like children, right? You wouldn't just give dynamite to a child, right? To every kid that you met on the street. And so, the, and that's a, a metaphor, that's an illustration that he's making for giving these Iotic books, to, or showing these, these Iotic books to people, right? So, so dynamite is to children as... The idiotic language is to the average NRST citizen. Um, again, even if we again, even if we totally believe, totally trust what Sabo says, that's a startling claim, right? Um, in what way? Why is ignorance of idiotic necessary? Why is ignorance of idiotic for the public good? What is the danger to people? How is it going to blow up in their faces, right? If they learn idiotic. So that's troubling, right? Especially knowing how firmly Shevik himself opposed the idea that that was even a thing, right? And now he's seeing something which sounds kind of startlingly like it, coming from someone who is in a position of power. Though Shevik wouldn't think of it that way exactly, right? Um, at least not initially. Um, but wait, it's worse. Right, um, we have the suspicion, at least I have the suspicion, that Sabo is not, in fact, being completely forthright about that. Is Sabo's motivation for telling Shevik not to show the books to anybody else simply his desire to protect people? Right. Again, that would be kind of alarming enough, even if true. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true at all. So what is going on then? If we read between the lines with what Sabo is saying, what do we see there? What can what 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 is to be read there? Um, well, it kind of sounds like a cover-up, right? It kind of, you know that is to say, like don't show anybody because because we're not supposed to be doing this, right? But what does that mean 
in this society, right? I mean, it's not like this is against the rules, but shh, it'll be our little secret, right? I mean, is that what we're supposed to be reading between the lines there? Well, obviously, no, there's no rules, right? There's no rules, so no rules to be broken. So it's not exactly like we don't have permission to do this and we're doing it behind the backs of the powers that be. That's not how the NRSD society works. So what does that mean then? Well, it seems to me that doesn't make the situation better. It makes the situation worse, right? Um, to be, you know, passing dynamite around among potential revolutionaries under the nose of, but behind the back of, uh, you know, a, uh, a potentially unjust governing conspiracy would be kind of noble, potentially, right? Um, I, 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 you know, revolution is at the core of Odonianism, right? So that would be fine, in a sense, if that, in fact, were what was going on. But that's not what's going on, right? Um, that's not what's going on at all. So what is going on then? How are we supposed to read it? Well, it seems to be... Uh, Michael says he's been plagiarizing their work and doesn't want people to know. That's true, Michael, though I don't think that can be Sobel's primary motivation the, for the primary reason that, I mean, who's he afraid is going to read it? No one's going to understand it. Again, it's not like people are going to be like, oh, now I see through Sobel's theories. Nobody even understands Sobel's theories, right? There are very few people who even understand that or will have read his books or no, right? So um, I don't think that that's... I, I, I doubt that that can be his motivation. In fact, if anything, Michael, you'd think if he were really activated by the desire to conceal the fact that he's been plagiarizing the idiotic physicists all these years, it's Shevik he would want to prevent from reading it, right? Because Shevik is, you know, the person who is giving the books is the one person who is most in the position, you know, uh, most readily in the position uh, to perceive what he's doing and potentially to expose it. So, um, so I can't, I can't imagine that that is the primary motivation uh, for what he's doing, uh, though potentially it factors into it. Um, yeah, Karita says, um, you know, is Sabo being a small sort of person who likes controlling people? Uh, you know, is, 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 is that what we're supposed to see? And, you know, Karita, it's, you know, Karita, you say that you think that that seems sort of simplistic, but, but actually it's really profound in the NRST context. Right, um, a small sort of person who likes to boost their own sense of power by exerting that, by manipulating other people, uh, and by exercising the control that they have, that their position permits them over, um, you know, other people who are subject to their authority in their particular sphere, right? That's an ugly thing, but it's not shocking to us, right? In fact, that's kind of my de definition of a bureaucrat. Like, when bureaucracy goes bad, that's what it is, right? It's about power. At least this is my own theory, my own perception of it anyway. Um, you know, when somebody who has the power over, you know, they, like clerk behind the desk at the DMV has power over you, right? Because you need your driver's license renewed, uh, or, you know, you need to get the new, your, your driver's license from that state, and they have the power to make your life difficult, or even to deny it to you, 
right? So they have power over you. And there are some persons who in that position enjoy exerting the power that they have over other people and small people who enjoy making themselves feel bigger at the expense of others, right? But so on the one hand, as you say, Karita, that seems like a really simple thing, even kind of a small thing, right? I mean, like, okay, that's annoying, but at the end of the day, it's, it's you know, kind of sad, right? But think what a fundamental violation that is of the Odonian principles that Shevik himself believes in so strongly, right? That whole concept, it's an alien concept. It's not just distasteful. It's not just wrong. It's alien to Shevik. He doesn't think that way. <laughs> uh, Kay is uh, thinking of academic administration. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a shaft which strikes home, Kay, absolutely. Um, as certainly, certainly jives with my own experience with academic administration. Uh, uh, yeah, one of the things I try to remind myself of when I look in the mirror and remind myself that I'm an administrator now. But yes, absolutely. That's, that's yeah, yeah. Uh, we've all encountered that again, but it, and, and it's, it's sort of an, an understood part of what goes on. That kind of use of power over somebody else is normal, right? It's normal. Um, not admirable, right? And we and it's it's not and even in some sense not defensible, but it's not weird. To Shevik, it's deeply weird, right? There is a fundamental breach. Sabo is guilty of a fundamental breach in solidarity and is basically um, co-opting Shevik uh, into that same pattern, right? Now think about. Um, the very first thing that he learns about Sabo, we, we get the, like the red flag about Sabo, right? And exactly this red flag um, when uh, Mithis, his earlier physics teacher, right, who is sending him on to Sabo, says that really counterintuitive thing about him. He says, if you go to Sabo, you will be his man. And that phrase, that possessive pronoun, um, you know, as we've seen, and we've, I think we've talked about this before in Pravik, the very language, the very construction of the language um, is hostile to that kind of expression. People don't use possessive pronouns that way. Um, as the narrator explains, like you, you would not talk about you know, your father or your mother. You talk about the father and the mother. That's how Pravik is structured. Right? That, that possession, that possessiveness, it's egoizing. Right? It's, it's fundamentally counter to the Odonian philosophy to the NRSD culture. So when Mithis says you will be his man, that sends up the flag, right? Okay, that Sabo is different and countercultural in some ways, and we can see it right away from that first interaction. Well, let's carry on then looking at Sabo and uh, what we can see from him. This is when Shevik uh, brings him his book, or rather when he produces that is, brings out the book, right, that Shevik has, uh, has made and that he has published without Shevik's knowledge. Shevik looked down at the book he still held, then out the window. He felt and looked rather ill. He also looked tense. But with Sabo, he had never been shy or awkward, as he often was with people whom he would have liked to know. I didn't know you were translating it, he said. Translated it, edited it 
polished, polished some of the rougher spots, filled in transitions you'd left out, and so forth. A couple of decades' work. You should be proud of it. Your ideas, to a large extent, form the groundwork of the finished book. It consisted entirely of Shevik's and Atro's ideas. Yes, Shevik said. He looked down at his hands. Presently, he said, I'd like to publish the paper I wrote this quarter on reversibility. It ought to go to Atro. It would interest him. He still hung up on causation. Publish it? Where? In the attic, I meant, on Urus. Send it to Atro, like this last one, and he'll put it in one of the journals there. You can't give them a work to publish that hasn't been printed here. Okay, what do we see here? Yeah, Carita, the to a large extent, uh, yeah, those are those are those are those are the deadly words, right? Um, let's just gloss those for a second, right? Your ideas, to a large extent, form the groundwork of the finished book. I mean, you could, Carita, you could even extend it, form the form the groundwork, right? Um, what do we see here? Well, just, you know, Carita, starting with that passage that you pointed to, as Shevik can immediately see, there is fundamental dishonesty here. And again, that's a thing which is shocking in this culture, right? Remember, the it was the lie to the uh, to the work crew foreman, which first triggered Shevik's shame at the prison experiment, right? Um, because lying to somebody is an exertion of power over them, right? And we talked about this some at the time when we were when we were looking at that. Um, here's Sobel. On the one hand, just lying to him, right? He's being dishonest. Shevik's ideas don't form the groundwork to the work, nor to a large extent, right? It, as the narrator immediately says, this book is entirely Shevik and Atro's ideas. Sobel has nothing to do with it. He's translated it into Yonic, into Yonic, that's it, right? And yet here is Sobel taking credit for this, pretending he's collaborated even with Shevik on this, right? Um, so... Yeah, yeah. That by itself, even before we consider anything else, that dishonesty, and, and again, it's not just the dishonesty. He is implicitly asking Shevik to enter into this dishonesty with him, right? He's asking Shevik to go along with the dishonest claim that he's making. Because, of course, Shevik could choose to say and to tell everybody, no. This is my book entirely. Sabul took credit for it, and he lies. He could do that, in theory, right? Um, the wor Sabul's words here are an open invitation for Shevik to go along with what he's uh, with what he's asked. Um, Nancy is wondering if uh, you know, with the use of the word groundwork and stuff, uh, Nancy's wondering if Sabul has taught himself into believing that he wrote this himself. You know, Nancy, I don't know. And of course, it's one of the things, I don't know that that's necessarily totally different from what we were already talking about, right? I mean, that's the thing about these kinds of lies, about this kind of deception, is, of course, there's always the chance that you might end up believing your own story yourself, Nancy, right? And then that's kind of, in a way, 
Like, you could say, well, it's, it would be better, right? Kind of, actually, maybe not, right? Um, with sort of the, the sort of profundity of the, you know, the dishonesty that he has sort of wrapped himself up uh, in there. Um, now, but, but that's not it, right? It's not just that. It's the immediate reaction that Samuel has to Shevik's ideas about publishing his article on reversibility, right? Um, what do we see there? How are those two things related? What is the relationship between Sabol's negative reaction to Shevik's desire to publish an article uh, in the Attic and his dishonesty about the book, which he's had translated into Iotic. How are those two things related? Are they are they part of the same thing? Do we see how do we how do we understand those two things going together? While you're thinking about that and typing answers to that, I have another simpler question. Okay, can you hear me now? All right. Excellent. How about that? Well, that's exciting. Um, okay. Um, okay, well, I know what happened. No, it wasn't just you. <laughs> Several of you were like, oh, no, there's something wrong with my connection. No, apparently mine. Um, that was um, an Adobe issue, a Flash issue. No idea why that happened. Going to look into that one. Um, but uh, okay. All right. Uh, Nargles, Karita, yeah, probably the Nargles. I, I, I'm sure that seems uh, that seems that seems likely. Um, okay. <laughs> Jennifer Miner says uh, in the chat room we're taking credit and how that works since it seems proprietarian. That's <laughs> yeah, true. That's yeah, true. Uh, okay. All right. Sorry. So we were talking about Sabo, right? And I had asked the question about Shevik. Um, uh, Okay, I, I was talking about Shevik. Um, uh, uh, why did why did Shevik want to want to right? Did you get that as far as my asking that question? Right? What is it? What is the reason exactly that Shevik is wanting to send his article? And again, I am. Um, oh, Karita says it was okay. Thank you, Karita, for telling me where it cut off. Um, uh, I left off it. I'll leave you to think about that. But now, okay. I'll leave you to think about that, but now, okay, that was when I asked my follow-up question. And my follow-up question was, um, what does, um, why does Shevik do this? What's Shevik's motivation for, uh, for wanting to send his article to Atro, right? Um, for wanting to publish his article in Iotic. And the answer to that, of course, the answer to all questions like this about the text are there, right? Then it, that is, the first thing, I, whenever I ask a question, the very first thing I want you to do is not to, like, look up and think, right? I don't want you to be like, well, if we... No, I want you to look down, right, at the text and see what it says, right? That's always that's always the first place to start. Then you kind of put things together, but you got to start with the observations. Um, no, I'm exactly. He wants to share, right? That's that. What he says is it ought to go to Atro. It would interest him, right? That is, his desire is to communicate, and he wants to communicate for Atro's benefit. Atro needs to learn this, right? Um, and so since Atro's own line of thinking would be benefited 
by what Shevik has said, at least you know, in Shevik's opinion, that's what would happen, right? Um, he therefore wants to send it. So it's not he, Shevik, does not seem to be egoizing here, right? He's not thinking about his fame on Urus or anything like that. He's exchanging ideas with peers, and we've already learned how fruitful that has been in Shevik's own career, right? How how much this has been, um, how how much his own thoughts have been stimulated by the exchange back and forth with the uh, with the Iari physicists. So, um, but what samples? Reaction. And to say this another way, what is um, what does Sabal's reaction betray? See what I mean? Yeah, good. As Mark, Mark Ingram points out, Shevik will also be able to learn more from Atro after he after he Atro has more of Shevik's ideas. So it's not like it's uh it's not um, altruistic, right? You'll remember altruism is against Odonianism, right? That even the idea of altruism is contrary to the Odonian philosophy because altruism suggests I have something right to give to you. And I will do something for your benefit. I am your benefactor, right? You 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 become somebody's patron or benefactor when you show altruism to them, according to the Odonian philosophy. And so they reject that idea. So it's not altruistic in that way. Um, yeah, good, good. Noam says Shevik wants to share with Urus. Sabo is in competition with them. Yeah, that seems that seems right. Um, he says we can't publish it there until we publish it here, right? Um, that that can't be done. That can't be done, right? It's like Anaris first. Even though Shevik immediately points out that that doesn't make any sense. A, because you you did just published my our, the book there right before it was published here, and secondly, like nobody here can understand it. That's kind of the problem, right? So what exactly? As Jennifer Miner says, it was just it was just done. Exactly. Well, well, let's keep. Let's look at more things, and let's endeavor to get through. You know, at least a good five slides. Um, because it's it's uh, uh, it's bigger than just sample, right? Shevik continues. But that's what we did with this one. All this, except my rebuttal, came out in in the i in the IAN review. By the way, funny story. So. Uh, I don't. I don't really. I still don't know how to pronounce that. Ayu, Ayu, you Ayun, you Ayun. I don't know. But when listening to the audio book version of it, I totally thought that that was a series of letters. I thought it was like A A U N or something like the letters A U and N. I thought it was an acronym for something. Um. Anyway, sorry. Um. Okay, sorry. All this except my rebuttal came out in the in the IUN review before this came out here. I couldn't prevent that. But why do you think I hurried this into print? You don't think everybody in PDC approves of our trading ideas with Urus like this, do you? Defense insists that every word that leaves here on those freighters be passed by a PDC-approved expert. And on top of that, do you think all the provincial physicists who don't get into this who don't get in on this pipeline to Urus don't begrudge our using it? Think they aren't envious? There are people lying in wait, lying in wait for us to make a false step. 
If we're ever caught doing it, we'll lose that mail slot on the Erasti freighters. You see the picture now? So, do you see the picture now? What is the picture? What is the picture that emerges from Sobel's words here? Yeah. <laughs> At the same time, Michael Michael says he's being very proprietarian, and Mark Ingram says mine mail slot. Yeah, yes, exactly, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. The perspective that he is suggesting, if he's right, if Sabo is right about this, that's really shocking, right? Right? Um, yeah, Tom Hillman is suggesting it sort of seems like some animals are more equal than others. Um, yeah, thinking of, uh, of, uh, of Orwell's. Uh, um, the animal story. <laughs> animal farm. That's it. I was, I was losing the noun. Animal, not animal house. That's a different thing. Yeah, animal farm. That's the thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, if Sabo is right, then there is this underlayer by like, all these things that Shevik has refused to accept about Anarasti society are actually true, right? If all of these things exactly mark the competition, not just between Sabo and the and the Irasti physicists, but between him and the provincial physicists, right? Um, that I mean, like, let's just go through and count the shocking things that he says, right? Um, You don't think everybody in PDC approves of our trading ideas with Urus like this, do you? Like, um, approves? Seriously? Think how violently Shevik responded against the idea that there was anybody to approve of anything, right? Um, even after this, in his conversation with Badap, after he and Badap get back together, he's still appalled at the idea that, you know, he's he says that, you know, he's talking to Badap and saying, who are you keep talking about they? They are doing these things. They are who are they? He says, right? If Sabo's right, there is a they, right? And the PDC is in fact in the business of governing, right? Of approving or disapproving of things and preventing people from doing things. And again, this doesn't seem that strange. Except when we put ourselves into the Odonian perspective, because Shevik does seem to believe very wholeheartedly in the Odonian principles. Um, and through, you know, with Shevik as our protagonist, we have become already by this point of the book, to some extent acculturated within the Anarasti principles, right? And so this is an alarming reversal of everything that he has believed and everything that he has continually asserted in defense of NRST culture. The idea that A, anybody is in a position to approve or disapprove of anybody and to, and to enforce that approval or disapproval is shocking. That it's the PDC, that the PDC actually does operate as a government. So you see the implications of this, right? We saw, we've seen already that when the Urasti physicists said to Shevik in chapter three, oh yeah, we totally get the whole subtle thing, right? You don't even have to explain it. It seems like they don't get it, but in fact, it turns out they do. What if it's the same thing about the government, right? 
they don't seem to understand about the government and how there's no real government. Um, but what if they're right about that too? It kind of sounds almost like maybe they are, right? Um, defense insists that every word that leaves here on those freighters be passed by a PDC-approved expert. Sabo, fortunately, is the PDC-approved expert, right? Um, do you think that, do you think they don't begrudge our using it? Begrudge? Why would they begrudge? What is the motivation for begrudging? They begrudge them their opportunity because they, Sabo and his people, possessive pronoun intended, aren't sharing. In which case, they're right. Not to begrudge, but to resent the lack of sharing that Sambo was doing. Yeah, Sabo is absolutely, as you guys are saying, he's being very, um, being very, very proprietarian about that slot, right? As, as you guys were saying before. But envy. I think they aren't envious. And that too is a shocking idea. Envy is a, a fundamentally proprietarian concept, right? Only if one person possesses a thing which somebody else doesn't possess. That's the only circumstances under which envy is possible, right? Um, yeah, Nancy's amazed that there's even a word for envy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Noam says this is the first time that there's a, there's a limited resource that can't or won't be shared across the whole society. And Noam, remember, we got a little glimpse. Remember Shevik's discomfort with dessert served in the refectory, right, at the Institute? They're getting special treatment. Dessert supplies are not being shared equally among everybody on Anaris, um, and that makes them uncomfortable. And this is far worse than that, right? Here again, we come back to Sabo, the Eotic books, and the dynamite, right? And now it becomes more clear than ever what he was wanting to do was to protect his ownership of the mail slot, right? His power over that. Um, Neil Ottenstein asks very uh, uh, um, appropriately, who else wants to communicate with Urus? Great question, right? I don't know, but it seems like other, I mean, at least he thinks they do. Now, well, it is entirely possible, right? And somebody else, um, uh, oh, who was it a little bit earlier on? Um, Good, Rachel, yeah, yeah. Rachel Draper had said that Sabo assumes that everybody else has the same motives as himself. And I agree with you, Rachel. It's possible that he's wrong, right? Um, so, Neil, if you're suggesting that maybe, like, the provincial physicists aren't really, like, pining away to be communicating with Urus and that Sabo's wrong about that, maybe so, right? As Rachel's suggesting, perhaps he's just projecting, right? Maybe he's just saying... Hey, uh, this is um, uh, this is how I would feel if I were them, right? So I assume this is how this is how they are. Um, maybe, maybe so. If that's the case, that would be good, I guess, because it might that without if that were the case, that would be evidence 
that the situation that we have here is just Sobble being a really bad egg, and not that Sobble is in fact revealing this dark underside of his whole society, right? But that's the question that comes up, and I mean, again, exactly as somebody was just asking, um, Noam was just asking this, who has a better read on reality, Sobble or Shevik? That, I think, is one of the questions that we have to come out of this with, right? I mean, it's clear that Sobble is uh, in, in great deviation from Odonian principles. Perfectly obvious, right? But is he just twisted, or is Shevik naive, right? We don't have any clear evidence uh, which one of those is really the case. Karita su suggests perhaps both. In a sense, perhaps both could be true. Uh, Tom Hillman thinks that Sobel has a better read on human nature. Well, and Tom, but remember that's exactly how the the Urasti were talking, right? People are people, right? Um, and uh, think of uh, Shafoyevsk's little barb about uh, idealists, you know, up on the moon, right? Um, yeah, I mean, there's 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 the ideals of Odonianism, and then there's human nature, right? Um, yeah, and so Noam says that Shevik is definitely naive, though Sobel might still be wrong. Certainly true, certainly true. Um, let's keep going. If you think you know what you're doing better than I do, then submit that paper to the press. You don't need permission. This isn't some kind of hierarchy, you know. I can't stop you. All I can do is give you my advice. You're the press syndicate's consultant on manuscript and physics, Shevik said. I thought I'd save time for everyone by asking you now. His gentleness was uncompromising. Because he would not compete for dominance, he was indomitable. Save time, what do you mean? Sobol growled. But Sobol was also an Odonian. He writhed, as if physically tormented by his own hypocrisy, turned away from Shevik, turned back to him, and said spitefully, his voice thick with anger, Go ahead. Submit the damned thing. I'll declare myself incompetent to give counsel on it. I'll tell them to consult Gavarib. She's the simultaneity expert, not I, the mystical gagaist. The universe has a giant harp string oscillating in and out of existence. What note does it play, by the way? Passages from the numerical harmonies, I suppose? The fact, that, the fact is that I am incompetent, in other words, unwilling, to counsel PDC or the press on intellectual excrement. Tom Hillman says, being right about human nature doesn't mean one is doing right by using that as an excuse for selfishness, whether on the planet or on the moon. Absolutely. Um, but even... Um, uh, absolutely. If you're using that as an excuse, that's obviously a moral dodge, right? Um, the question is, is it true, right? The glimpses that were given of Anarasti society in chapter 2 and 3, on the one hand, are meant to suggest things are just different there, right? Many of the things that we absolutely take for granted, like ownership of private property, even, th you know, the, the th things which are our natural impulses, which we would call human nature and they would call propertarian, right? Um, things which are, I, I, I think, for instance, about the conversation the boys were having about prisons before they started their experiment, right? 
um, how they couldn't even comprehend the idea of like one person using force on another to compel them to do something they really didn't want to do, right? That's it does suggest that there is a fundamental shift uh, in their view of the world, right? The question is, are the Erastee physicists right when they say people are people, right? You can't change human nature, can't you? Isn't that kind of what the Holodonian experiment was about? Isn't that why they left Mars? Isn't why that wall exists? Isn't that what is what like they've quarantined themselves or the rest of the world away from them, depending on which side of the wall you're standing on, right? Isn't that the point of the wall, right? Um, isn't that the infection that would spread from Uras, right? If everybody knew more about Uras and, and knew Iotic? Um Yeah, yeah, exactly. Tom was just typing that same thing. If you've changed human nature, you don't need a wall. And that's Tieran's argument, right, Tom? Um, that's Tieran's argument. Look, if we are as superior as we say we are, and we believe in our principles, we should share them, right? We should share them. Um, not be, why, why should we be afraid? Why should we hate? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Kay, I confess I was thinking the same thing. Uh, Kay Ben Abraham was noting that uh, the, him being indomitable because he was not competing for dominance was reminding her strongly of the men of Rohan do not lie and therefore they are not easily deceived. Yeah, Kay, I was totally thinking the same thing in that moment. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and, but Norm, you're absolutely right. There is an admission of hierarchy by Shevik. And, 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 and I think, Norm, you're pointing to the critical thing here. It's not just that we, the readers, are seeing that Sabo is betraying the existence of a hierarchy, right? That, that hierarchy really does, in fact, exist. Shevik is acknowledging a hierarchy. And that is a major step on his part, right? Um, and I think that's... I think that's does it mean that he is accepting the fact that things don't work this way, you know, the way that like things don't match up to the Odonian ideals, that his society isn't what he thought it was? I mean, as uh, one of you were saying um, uh, a little bit earlier on, um, yeah, Karita was saying, you know, uh, Sabo is just sort of casually saying that your whole life is a lie earlier on, right? When he was kind of striking at the very underpinning of. Shevik's ideas of NRST society. Shevik acknowledging the hierarchy here doesn't necessarily mean that he accepts that, right? It does show that he gets Sabol's hypocrisy, right? That he understands that. Um, that, he, that he sees that Sabol is an aberration, right? Um, What is Sobble so upset about here? Why does Sobble get so mad? You see how the narrator prompts us there? What we're prompted to look at? How we're prompted to understand Sobble? Yeah, Neil, there is a... He is... 
he Sobel does seem to be aware of a certain threat. I mean, Shevik does pose a threat to him in some ways. He could be exposed in some way. Um, yeah, he's he is. Uh, Michael was saying that he's threatened too. But 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 look now in that last paragraph. What does the narrator emphasize? To what does the narrator draw our attention? Yes, no, the hypocrisy, right? Exactly. And Nancy, he is um, his own awareness of his own hypocrisy, his own sensitivity to his own hypocrisy. Sabo is not so far gone <clears throat> as a propertarian that he does not perceive that he is being a propertarian, right? He knows. Um, Kay Ben Abraham says he's spiteful and angry because he's losing this battle, which is certainly which is certainly true. Um, but yes, he 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 is aware of the fact that he's being a hypocrite, right? He is, as the narrator says, he too is an Odonian, right? Um, so what Sabal is saying is countercultural, and he knows that it's countercultural. Um, and so, what does he do? What's his response? Is there something? We've seen something like this before, right? Almost everything that happens in this book is directly paralleled by at least one other moment, right? In all of these different chapters and stories that are being juxtaposed together. Um, this reminds me, good, Neil, you've got it exactly. Um, shame, shame. He seems to feel shame for what he's doing, like the shame that Shevik himself felt. Uh, when during the prison experiment, right when he when they had imprisoned their friend, um, that moment when Shevik's like the they're play acting, right? Tyrion very explicitly is play acting. Um, he's play acting being the being the 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 master, the proprietarian warden, right? The one who owns somebody else and can make them do whatever they want to do. He Tyrion is very. Uh, very openly adopting a role, right? Um, it's not him. It's not what he believes, but he's it's his it's it's the role that he has that he has accepted. Um, okay. Um, Shevik feels shame, and the moment at which he feels shame is the moment in which he can't avoid the knowledge that how he's acting, what he's taking pleasure in is something, even if it's a joke, right? Even if it's just a, um, even if they're just playing, even if he's just acting, it is still just so fundamentally contrary to all of his principles that he can't handle it anymore, right? Um, so he feels shame. Sabal does seem to feel that same shame. And in this moment, the, the position, Shevik has exposed his own hypocrisy, right? Shevik has made it clear that, you know, Sabal can try to hide behind Odonianism. You don't need permission, right? Nobody can tell you whether you can or can't, right? And Shevik points out, like, oh, but we both know that I do need permission. I need your permission. If you don't permit me, it won't happen. And he can't hide it anymore. So how does he respond? Right? Shevik responded to his sense of shame by cutting it off, right? that he had to bring the whole prison thing to an end right away. Um, Sabo responds, Kate Neville says he, he responds by lashing out, by calling Gavarab's theories excrement. 
Um, yeah. Oh, interesting. Kate is paralleling it to Shevet's impulse to beat up Shevik. That's interesting. Okay. Um, I'll come back to that in a second. Uh, I, I wasn't thinking of Shevet here, uh, uh, who beat Shevik up, but, um, but yeah, I can see the parallel there. That's interesting. What do we see behind these accusations? What's the um, uh, oh yeah, Arthur, the the Gagaist thing? Um, no, no, of course it has nothing to do with Lady Gaga. Um, I, I'm not sure I can provide a good definition of that word. Um, it's a a uh, artistic movement, or am I confusing it with Dadaism, which is a different thing? Um, yeah, I'm not confident I can I can uh, I can define it for you, Arthur. But it's certainly um, it's a concept that goes back a ways. I'm pretty sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, if anyone can. Uh, anyone has anything illuminating to say about uh, 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 Gagaism? Uh, feel free to share, and I, I will in turn share it. Um, he calls Gvarb's theories and Shevik's theories, of course, excrement, right? Um, but uh, why? What does this show? What is this reflect? And notice what he keeps coming back to. Right? What's the word that he repeats? Incompetent. I'll say I'm incompetent. I am incompetent. Right? Um, in other words, unwilling. You see there? Um, so it's... Envy. Right? He doesn't understand Gvarb's theories. He keeps saying, I'll say I'm incompetent. He defines incompetent in this case as unwilling, right? Um, I'll say I'm incompetent, in other words, unwilling. He doesn't want to admit that he doesn't get it, that he doesn't understand, that he can't follow Kvara and Shevik, and he doesn't see the, the significance of it. But he doesn't want to admit that, because that would be him losing his... Um, him losing his position. Ah, okay, Arthur. Yeah, thank you. Um, here I will. <sighs> yeah, flash attack again, Neil. I'm telling you, boy, this better not become a patch. So remember that we're we're still we're still testing this thing out, right? If this becomes a, a pattern, that is uh, that is pretty bad. But I'm back. Okay, all right, all right. So. I see envy, as I was saying, in Sobel's words here. Um, and I think that that's... Uh, um, uh, I think that that's, that seems pretty clear. His dismissiveness of Gvarab and his dis dismissiveness of the simultaneity stuff. Um, uh, 
seems to be fairly clearly fueled by envy. And his own words talking about people being envious before really seems to really seems to suggest it, right? Um, okay, let's keep going. Here's Shevik's line of thought about this situation and what he should do and where he is, right? As Midas had predicted, he was Sobel's man. Sobel had ceased to be a functioning physicist years ago. His high reputation was built on expropriations from other minds. Shevik was to do the thinking, and Sobel would take the credit. Obviously an ethically intolerable situation, which Shevik would denounce and relinquish. Only he would not. He needed Sobel. He wanted to publish what he wrote, and to send it to the men who could understand it, the Orosti physicists. He needed their ideas, their criticism, their collaboration. So they had bargained, he and Sabo, bargained like profiteers. It had not been a battle, but a sale. You give me this, and I'll give you that. Refuse me, and I'll refuse you. Sold? Sold. Shevik's career, like the existence of his society, depended on the continuance of a fundamental, unadmitted profit contract. Not a relationship of mutual aid and solidarity, but an exploitative relationship. Not organic, but mechanical. Can true function arise from basic dysfunction? Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah, uh, Kay Ben Abraham says this is the highest test of true Odonianism. Um, can you can you own your ideas? Right? If you're entirely unproprietarian, all that should matter is the ideas themselves, not who had them. Okay, exactly. That's where I think the real rub in this situation is. Right? It's bad enough that Sambal is openly, at least to Shevik, openly proprietarian and pressing him into this exploitative relationship. Right? But Shevik in order to get what he wants, which is to be able to continue to pursue his work, right, has to bargain with him, has to meet him on proper, rather than denouncing his propertarianism, has to meet him on propertarian grounds. But wait, Kay, as you suggest, there's more to it than that, though, right? It's not merely that in going along with Sabo, he is becoming complicit in this propertarian model. The position that Shevik is placed in is deeply challenging on that other level, that level of the control of ideas, the ownership of ideas, right? Because you're absolutely right, Kay. The, the, it would seem the pure Odonian response would be to say, what does it matter, right? There's almost a challenge to that. It's almost as if Sabo is daring him, because it's easy to see, right? If Shevik protests, if Shevik were to come out and say, Sabo is taking credit for my ideas, what would everybody say? Obviously. There's a clear thing everybody would say if he went out there and said, but those are my ideas, not his. Stop egoizing, Neil. That's exactly what they would say. Stop egoizing. 
Yeah, it's not about you. It's not about your ideas. James Stevens is surprised they even put names on books. Uh, James, somebody mentioned this earlier on, and I think it's exactly... I think it does make sense. How do you greet somebody on Urus? Or, sorry, on Anaris? How do you greet somebody? How does it work? You, you, you've just met somebody new. What do you do? What does a good NRST do? Jennifer, yeah, you give them your name, right? The first thing you say, good, Brian says the same thing. The first thing you say is your name. So he meets somebody and he says, Shevik, right? To identify himself, to say who he is, right? Um, there's a way in which the putting of names on books sounds to me kind of like that, right? Um, if it's if you're sharing, like the idea of like whom you're sharing with doesn't seem like it must necessarily be intrinsically propertarian. Um, you know, to know that you are sharing the ideas of Shevik. Now, there clearly there is always a trap there, like a moral trap, right? If you're being given credit, if you're being credited for your ideas, then there's a chance that you'll consider them your ideas, right? That you'll be that you will indeed have an egoizing and propertarian view of them and of your accomplishment, and of your book, right? All of those things. Um, but, but nevertheless, I don't think it's, I don't think one would have to say it shows a fundamental flaw in Odonian principles to put names on books in the first place, any more than it's egoizing to introduce, to identify yourself when you meet somebody, right? Um, you're just letting the other person know whom they're talking to. In a sense, of course, to conceal your identity is almost, in a sense, to sort of preserve power over somebody else. Um, so, uh, I think um, I think that that's to me that could sort of work. I think. Um, yeah, Brian Dimmick says putting names on books is only propertarian if books are property and not freely shared. That's certainly true. Um, yeah, good Kate says otherwise, uh, I, how would the other person know to whom to address critiques or suggestions? Exactly. I mean, it, sound, it seems like the relationship that Atro and uh, Shevik have is the thing that you would want to do, like the reason why you would put a name on a book, right? Um, because it, it facilitates the back and forth of ideas between people, not just pretending that these ideas are kind of out there, right? Um, so yeah, that, that all kind of makes sense to me. But again, here's, to me, here's the crucial thing. As I said, it's with, if, if he protests, he's ecoizing, right? The, the, this is the particularly insidious nature of this particular trap, right? Um, Sobel is not only himself acting in a propertarian fashion, he's doing a thing that you can't... He, he Shevik, would be, you know, unodonian even to object to. It's a really complicated situation. Shevik's hard on himself here. He's like, see, look, here I am being a propertarian, striking a bargain with Sobel, right? Um, but of course, Sobel himself necessitates that. Shevik is saying he believes that he did what he had to do in order to get his work done, right? Um, he is, being a physicist is what, that's how he can best benefit his greatest gift. Right? It's how he can benefit, not that they would use the word gift, 
that's just ownership, right? But anyway, it's how he can how he can best function within the society, how he can most uh, uh, most benefit the society as a whole. Um, and in order to do that work, he has to be able to do that work, right? Um, but this is why he's asking at the very end there, can true function arise from basic dysfunction? He's having a means and ends problem, right? His end is good, right? Is Odonian, but his means are not Odonian. And would that work? Could that work? Um, yes, Kay. Oh, exactly. I hadn't thought of that, but you're exactly right. Kay has uh, nailed this. It's just like in the nursery. The other kid shoves Shevik out of the sun, but Shevik gets chastised for crying about it. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, we have a little model there of, of Sabo and Shevik, right? And yes, yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly, it's a, it's, it's a brilliant, a brilliant perception there, Kay. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, more. This, as I mentioned at the end of class last time, this was sort of the image that I was ultimately aiming at um, over the course of the last class because it seems to me so suggestive of the whole situation. This is in on, on Uros, of course. As the car followed the Riverside Highway toward the turnoff to Ayu Eun, it passed a bluff on the curve of the River Sice, and up on the bluff there was a building, heavy, ruinous, implacable, with broken towers of black stone. Nothing could have been less like the gorgeous, light-hearted buildings of the Space Research Foundation, the showy domes, the bright factories, the tidy lawns and paths. Nothing could have made them look so much like bits of colored paper. That, I believe, is the fort, Chifoyalisk remarked with his usual satisfaction at placing the tactless remark where it was least wanted. Gone all to ruins, Pei said. Must be empty. Want to stop and have a look at it, Shevik? Chifoyalis asked, ready to tap on the chauffeur's screen. No, Shevik said. He had seen what he wanted to see. There was still a fort in Drio. He did not need to enter it and seek down ruined halls for the cell in which Odo had spent nine years. He knew what a prison cell was like. He looked up, his face still, his face still set and cold at the ponderous dark walls that now loomed almost above the car. I have been here for a long time, the fort said, and I am still here. Um, Jennifer, I, no, of course she doesn't know what it's like to be a prisoner, exactly, literally, but Jennifer, I would actually nominate that sentence. Um, as one of those moments in the book which encapsulates just a huge portion of this entire book, right? Um, he knew what a prison cell was like. That's huge. It's huge, right? And of course, it has more than one meaning, many meanings, right? Um, Notice the contrast, right? The beauty of Urus. Remember that passage we looked at last time about the beauty of Urus? This, this was, uh, remember Shevik's feeling that this is what a planet should be like, right? Um, and in contrast to the 
the neatness and the beauty and the lushness of Oris, we have the tower, the fort. Right? Heavy, ruinous, implacable, broken. <laughs> Kay says, Le Guin, how are you this masterful in every nook and cranny of your prose? I know, Kay, I find it just amazing. Really amazing. Um, there was still a fort in Drio, right? Again, see, like, Kay, I'd nominate that sentence too. I, I mean, look, it's like two sentences in one paragraph that encapsulate huge, you know, sort of point to huge themes, right? Um, there was still a fort in Drio. This is Urus, right? Is Urus like the you know the like movies that they were shown in uh, in school, right? Those outdated movies that they were wondering like, is that what Urus is really like? Is that what it really looks like? Oh, no, it's different, right? But there is still a fort in Drio, right? That ugly, implacable, heavy thing, right? Um, is is it's still there right um and of course we can read between the lines here right pay says it must be empty jafoyalisk is hoping that shevik is going to want to go tour it because pay obviously does not want to tour it pay has already lied and said it had been torn down and then jafoyalisk is like hey isn't that the fort right this is of course the competition between uh thu and aio Right, um, Jafoyalisk the Thuvian is trying to undermine Pei and expose him, right? And presumably, uh, presumably, there's something. There's it's probably still used as a prison or something, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, Arthur. I was trying not to think of Tevildo, Prince of Cats, as well when I was. When I read about Thu, um, uh, Noam asks, does Shevik know what a prison cell is like? Yeah, he does. Not literally, he wasn't the one who was shut into it, right? He's seen it from the outside, but of course locking out and locking in are the same process, right? And of course, he's been in a prison cell in a different way. Um, let's transition with it. Using that as a transition, I want to talk for the rest of the time tonight about Shevik's isolation. Um, the metaphorical, psychological, social prison cell in which Shevik has, find him, has found himself locked, uh, and of which he does have a great deal of experience. Let's look at, uh, let's look at a bunch of things. Here's the single that he finds himself in when he gets uh, to, you know, the Institute. Shevik's first reaction to being in a private room then was half disapproval and half shame. Uh, the paragraph before, remember, the narrator was explaining how um, only people who are, like, people that other people complain about, right? If you're, if you're set aside and made to live on your own, uh, it's a judgment on you by the society, right? Uh, it's shameful. Half disapproval and half shame. Why had they stuck him in here? He soon found out why. It was the right kind of place for his kind of work. If ideas arrived at midnight, he could turn on the light and write them down. 
if they came at dawn, they weren't jostled out of his head by the conversation and commotion of four or five roommates getting up. If they didn't come at all, and he had to spend whole days sitting at his desk, staring out the window, there was nobody behind his back to wonder why he was slacking. Privacy, in fact, was almost as desirable for physics as it was for sex. But all the same, was it necessary? This is in that section. This is the same in the same portion of the book where he's uh, having his moral qualms about eating desserts, right? When, which he was taking two of, right? And he wasn't sure if that was a that was a, a correct moral thing to do. Um, what do we learn here? He feels half disapproval and half shame at finding that he's been put in a single to live alone. Right, disapproval, because it's unadonian, right? To just live on your own, right? You should live in a community. You should sleep in a dormitory. You should be part of the community. So he disapproves, just like he disapproves of the extra desserts. But he also feels shame, like they've passed judgment on him, right? Like he's being ostracized like a wall has been erected around him and he's being quarantined, right? So then what does he... What conclusion does he come to? It's functional, right? It is, in fact, functional. He thought it was dysfunctional to be put in it. It's like it either, either it suggests that he himself personally is dysfunctional socially or it's evidence that this society that he's in is dysfunctional, right? Um, like the, the extra desserts and the single rooms themselves by giving privilege to people who are there studying at the Institute, not treating them the same as everybody else, that would be dysfunctional on a social level, right? So is it the society that's dysfunctional or is it him that's dysfunctional? Well, then he, then he, uh, he comes to realize that it, no, it is functional. It's not dysfunctional. It's functional, right? Um, this is the best kind of room for this kind of work. Because I am a physicist, um, it is best, it is most functional for me to have a single room, right? Yes, but it kind of makes it worse, too. Right? James Stevens is wondering if he's being quarantined because he's learning eotic. James, you're certainly right that um, if he's going to have books and papers written in eotic and Sabul doesn't want anybody else to know that he and his students are learning eotic uh, because the PDC might disapprove, then the best thing to do would be to make sure that his students are in a, you know, his, 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 his people, right, are in singles. So maybe, James, and I hadn't even really thought of that, that Sabo had arranged it. But of course I should have thought of it because there was a note from Sabo in the room when he gets there, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and Brian, you're right. We're never told that, that if that was the reason he uh, was assigned the single room. Now notice, Shevik himself never seems to, he never seems to suspect Sabo of doing that, right? That it's the keep Yadik a secret line, that it leads to his single room, that's something that's never raised in the text. It seems to me, though, perfectly fair, perfectly just speculation based on the other things that we've seen. Um, 
Yeah. Um, Corita says he doesn't raise the question of what it would be like to have other people doing the same work. Great point, Corita. Notice as Corita is pointing out that in this passage he's thinking, oh yeah, it's um, it's totally okay for a physicist to be in a room alone because if I were in a room with a bunch of other people, you know, our schedules would be different. It wouldn't really work out. But yeah, Corita, what if you were with other physicists who are also working the same way? Um, and who wouldn't misunderstand him, and who wouldn't be necessarily bothering him, and you know, right? I mean, it, it's it could be um, that is to say, he might be sort of assuming his own isolation even more than is necessary. But of course, you see the problem, right? If to some extent it makes it better to say, "Oh no, this is functional for me," because the job that I have, the work that I do, makes it such that I need to be separated from society. So wait, okay, hang on. Then what does that say about you? <laughs> right? It's not actually better, really. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Brian says it seems he's already given up on finding those other physicists. Yeah, because Brian, the only, the only place where they are is in Urus, right? Um, he might be able to hang out with Atro, but he can't, he can't do this with Sobel. Right. So, one prospect that's raised then, I think, by this passage is the question of, you know, is Shevik fundamentally alienated? Right? Is he separate? Is he isolated from the whole rest of society? Is he just different? Is the Odonian principle of brotherhood and solidarity, does it apply to everybody equally? Is it even possible to apply it? to him? Is he like immune to it because of the work that he does and the kind of person that he is? And that's kind of a, an alarming question. Let's go backwards. Um, I want to go back to a passage from chapter 2 that I skipped at the time and I mentioned that I really wanted to talk about it but I've been saving it till we got to this, this, this whole question of Shevik's isolation from society, right? Um, let's look at this dream. If you read this passage describing Shevik's recurring dream and did not immediately know I was going to hone in on this and, and, and want to really talk about it a lot, uh, then you don't know me that well. Right? <laughs> that was a, that was the, if, you, if, if you guys have started that pool about uh, predicting which passages we were going to do, this is the biggest gimme in the book so far. Um, the boy went to bed muddy legged and went to bed muddy legged and dreamed he dreamed so this is remember he's dreaming this is after he was kicked out of the sharing and learn and the the the, the sharing and listening group and he went and talked with his dad and had a fun night learning how a slide rule worked and talking to his dad about math right the boy went to bed muddy legged and dreamed he dreamed he was on a road through a bare land far ahead across the road he saw a line as he approached it across the plain, he saw that it was a wall. It went from horizon to horizon across the barren land. It was dense, dark, and very high. The road ran up to it and was stopped. He must go on, and he could not go on. The wall stopped him. A painful, angry fear rose up in him. He had to go on, or he would never come home again. But the wall stood there. There was no way. This is one of those passages, if you come back and reread this passage, right, you go through the book, right? 
this is in chapter 2. Read chapter 3 and come back and read this passage again. Read chapter 4, come back and read this passage again. Read chapter 5 and come back and read this passage again. And every single time you come back, you'll see something different in this passage. Right? Uh, at least that's my experience of it. Um, this is a little more interesting. A little more abstract, anyway, Jennifer, probably, than dreaming of eggs and bacon. I totally agree. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Now, Karita, I think that that's a really interesting observation. Karita says there's no word on what the wall is made out of, um, and it might not be important, right? Yeah, I, I agree. It doesn't seem to be important what it's made out of, but that itself is kind of interesting, right? Especially, where does it start? I mean, obviously, what we're supposed to be thinking of at the beginning is obvious, right? A road with a line across it, the, a line which is a wall, right? We know where we are. We were there in the first paragraph of chapter one of the book, right? The wall around the port of Anaris, right? The wall which becomes merely a line when it crosses the road. So there's no gate, just a line across the road. So, okay. Um, Karita, I do think it's interesting that we're not told what it's made out of because it's... That connection at first to the wall around the port of Inaris, um makes it seem like he's having a dream about a real thing, <clears throat> right? And maybe it's sort of meant to be suggestive and, and, and sort of symbolic of something else, but it seems to have it, the, the dream seems to have its roots in a real thing. But it's not the mere literal extension of that physical thing. This is where I keep I'm coming back to your observation here. It's not like it's a stone wall, but this stone wall is a super, super high stone wall, right? It's not because, of course, the wall where it crosses the road is merely a line, like the real wall, right? But we're told in that first paragraph, although it's really easy to cross that line, it's a line of very great significance. It's, an, it's, a, it's a really important boundary. Ideologically, there is a wall there. In Shevik's dream, the ideological wall, which Karita doesn't have any descri physical description, right? It's not a stone wall or something. The wall is impenetrable. Yeah, James, here the road stops at the wall. It's worse than a gate. It's, it's, it's that line, which is a mathematical thing, right? Just a, just a line, right? A geometric thing becomes impenetrable. Um, Kate... Yeah, Kate says the reference to home jumped down. He could never come home again. What is home to a proper Odonian? Absolutely, Odonians shouldn't have homes, right? Because you almost have to say my home, right? It's proprietarian to have a home. Um, we'll come back to that, Kate, but don't forget that observation, Kate, right? What is home to an Odonian? Um, that passage should jump out at you. And I, I would hope more and more as we go through. Um, yeah, Noam says, I think the adjectives dense, dark, and very tall are all very important. The tall is the least important one. I think quite possibly, but dense, dark. Um, I don't know if I'd say tall is the least important, Noam, but anyway, it's... it's the wall is completely unsurmountable. That seems to me to be a really important thing about it, right? It is, it is dark, 
you can't see through it. It is dense. You can't push through it. And it is tall. You can't climb over it. I mean, I think ultimately all three, um, all three adjectives are designed, you know, seem calculated to express the, uh, the absolute nature of the barrier, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, Brian, he perceives the ideological wall before he has ever had the chance to see the real wall. Yes, at that point in his life, he has never seen the port of Anaris. He's never been there. We have, though, later in his life, in the previous chapter. And we'll come back to that. Um, Noam thinks that dark also seems to have moral tones. And I agree. I agree. Even that sense of visual impenetrability, even if it only means... It's dark, meaning you can't see what's so you can't see through it or what's on the other side. Well, that kind of has moral implications too. I agree. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, there is no way. Yeah, yeah. Oh, who is emphasizing that? Um, Jennifer Miner says the road stops in the last line. There was no way. Um, makes her think that there's simply nothing, um, but beyond it. Maybe, but of course he, he, he doesn't know, right? Um, but notice, Jennifer, whether there is or not, he assumes that there is. He wants to continue down this road. So what do we have here? We have, um, yes, James, this is the same day he gets the Book of Numbers. Or, you know, he's talking about the Book of Numbers. Um, okay, so he... The, the dream involves him needing to continue down the road. But the wall stops him. There is no way. He needs a way. He has a destination, and it's down the road, right? Following the road is what he does. It's who he is. It's what happens, right? In the dream, we're not told, of course. He doesn't know in the dream why he's trying to go down the road, but it's, it's what he's doing. Right? But the wall thwarts him. The wall stops him. The wall denies him permission. It's like a prison. Right? Like, a, like the guards and the prisoners. Right? To thwart the will of somebody else by arbitrary decree. Well, this wall is thwarting him. Right? Just as the prisoner's desire to get out of the prison cell is going to be thwarted by the prison guards. Um... More. He beat at the smooth surface with his hands and yelled at it. His voice came out wordless and cawing. Frightened by the sound of it, he cowered down, and then he heard another voice saying, Look, it was his father's voice. He had an idea. His mother, Rulag, was there too, though he did not see her. He had no memory of her face. It seemed to him that she and Palat were both, that's his father, of course, the father, right, were both on all fours, in the darkness under the wall and that they were bulkier than human beings and shaped differently. They were pointing, showing him something there on the ground, the sour dirt where nothing grew. A stone lay there. It was dark like the wall, but on it, or inside it, there was a number. And five, he thought at first. Then took it for one, then understood what it was, the primal number that was both unity and plurality. That is the cornerstone, said a voice of dear familiarity, 
and Shevik was pierced through with joy. There was no wall in the shadows, and he knew that he had come back, that he was home. Later, he could not recall the details of this dream, but that rush of piercing joy he did not forget. He had never known anything like it. So certain was its assurance of permanence, like one glimpse of a light that shines steadily, that he never thought of it as unreal, though it had been experienced in a dream. Only, however reliable there, he could not reattain it, either by longing for it or by the act of will. He could only remember it, waking. When he dreamed of the wall again, as he sometimes did, he, the dreams were sullen and without resolution. So this rush of piercing joy, the memory of which never leaves him throughout his life, right, and was unique in his experience, unattainable by will, unique in his experience with the dream, What's the joy? Let's go back and look at that again. What is it that causes him joy? His father and his mother are both there. On all fours, in the darkness under the wall. And they're not shaped like people. They're showing him something on the ground. Something on the ground where nothing grew. So out of the barren earth comes a stone. And it's dark like the wall. So it looks to be made of the same substance, whatever that substance is, and we're never told. It seems to be made of the same substance as the wall. And there's a number on it, or in it. At first he thought it was five. What's the significance of five? Do you remember the, 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 the significance of five? What is five? Remember the square? The numerical square? And it's a little hard. This was right before this passage. So when you first read it, you probably would remember it, but it's now been a long time. Um, five is the center, Kate. Exactly, yes. Remember he, he was, he liked, as he's walking around, he likes to picture the square, right, with the first nine integers, right? Yeah, the 15 square with five in the center, Neil. Exactly. So every way you add up the lines of three numbers, they add up to 15, right? Um, he loves the beauty of it, the symmetry of it, the orderliness of it, and five is the center, right? So he, first he takes it for five, the center of the square. Then he thinks it's one. And then he recognizes it as, recognizes it as the primal number. Now, what is the primal number? It's a concept. It's a paradoxical concept. The primal number is the number, the concept of which embraces both singularity and plurality, both unity and plurality at the same time. Right? What should we be thinking of? What should that make us think of? It should remind us of simultaneity, right? Sequency versus simultaneity. The general theory 
that he that everyone is hoping he's going to come out with is the general theory that reconciles both sequency physics and simultaneity physics, right? Exactly, Brian. That's the primal number, right? What else? What about Odonianism, right? Plurality and unity simultaneously, right? I hear that on Anaris, you treat the women just like the men, and he laughs, right? No, no, they're not the same, right? We do realize that men and women are different, um, but it's, it's plurality. Everybody's different. Everybody has a different role, right? Everybody has a different personality, but unity, solidarity. Solidarity is different from singularity, because it involves unity of a plurality, right? Um, yeah, Noam is thinking about Urus and Anaris. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and that seems to... What is, this is the cornerstone. The cornerstone of what? The thing there in the ground looks just like the wall. Is it the cornerstone of the wall? Like, if you get it, you can take down the wall and get through? I don't know. I'm not sure I understand that. So this is what he's meant to do? Meant to do? By whom? Right? He's not under orders. But this is the joy that he finds in his life, this memory of this? Do you see why I transitioned the way that I did? I started with that passage about his dormitory room. Um, because it raised the question, is he just different? Right? Fundamentally different. Um, is there something wrong about him? Right? Um, yeah. Um, yeah, Kate says it's the cornerstone of, of home. Yeah, um, that is the cornerstone, said a voice of dear familiarity, and Shevik was pierced through with joy. There was no wall in the shadows, and he knew he had come back, and that he was home. So, um, yeah, James, I don't know what that means either. There is no wall in the shadows. Right. It doesn't say there's no wall anymore, like when he finds this thing which is the cornerstone, suddenly the wall vanishes. It doesn't say that. He's in the shadows, under the wall. The shadows are the shadows cast by the wall. But in the shadows, there is no wall. I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure I understand that. Um, but then again, I don't understand the primal number either. Um, he had come back. He was home. He was going somewhere, right? on the road, and finds that he's come home. We'll come back to this. Yeah, James suggests the cornerstone of his theory. That seems plausible. 
Oye asked him if he had seen the work on relativity theory by an alien physicist, Einstein, er, Einstein of Terra. Shevik had not. They were intensely interested in it, except for Atro, who had outlived intensity. Pei ran off to his room to get Shevik a copy of the translation. It's several hundred years old, but there's fresh ideas in it for us, he said. Maybe, said Atro, but none of these off-worlders can follow our physics. The Hainish call it materialism, and the Terrans call it mysticism, and then they both give up. Don't let this fad for everything alien sidetrack you, Shevik. They've got nothing for us. Oh, sorry, Tom Hillman was saying if he's found the cornerstone, he has found a corner and can get around the wall, and so home. Maybe. Maybe it's a way to get around the wall? Possibly. Possibly. Um, that's an interesting idea. There don't seem to be any corners to the wall around the Port of Anaris. It's a circle, right? Um... Atro's attitude towards aliens, right? Um, and his embracing of SETI and physics. The us and them mentality of Atro, right? The us part is lovely. The solidarity that Atro seems to suggest exists, right? Uh, between you know him and Shevik, between Uras and Anaris. That's kind of lovely. The they part is not quite so much, right? Don't let this fad for everything alien sidetrack you, Shevik. Right? Now that that uh, Einstein character, whatever, what does he know, right? Nobody else can understand our physics. Where, what interested me here is where walls are being erected, right? Where the lines are being drawn between us and them. But it's these drawing of lines, which in part is one of the things that I think we can see struggle, we can see Shevik struggling with, right? Okay, but who's the us, right? Who is the us? And when Atro and he and Atro are having a conversation in chapter six, uh, five, in chapter five, um, we see this struggle, right? Um, Atro doesn't like, he rejects the Hainish. The Hainish, who are aliens, right, have this theory that all life on other worlds, like Urus and Terrus, which is, of course, the Earth, obviously. Einstein makes that fairly clear. We also get a relative dating of this story relative to, uh, uh, to, to Terran years for the first time here, right? But anyway, um, life on all of these planets originally came from, from Hainish, right? Um, he, Atro, rejects that, right? Because he wants to draw the line between us and them, right? That's where he wants to draw it. He's willing to encompass humanity, right? But he still, he still wants the wall. He still wants the line. One way one of the things that this passage made me think is that it, it's another way to sort of ask about um, um, to ask about 
Chevik's character, right? Who is us? Where can we draw the line? Yeah, Kate, you're right. Atro calls the Terran that says the Terrans call Setian physics mysticism, which is like Sabol's criticism of Guevara. You're absolutely right, Kate. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, let's keep going. I have been here for a long time, the room said to Shevik, and I am still here. What are you doing here? Um, is when he's looking at the furniture and everything of the room, right? And when he's there at the university and, and everything seems so old to him, right? Compared to how things are, how new things are um, in, uh, in Anaris, right? I've been here for a long time and I am still here, which is, of course, the same thing the fort. Drio says, right? What are you doing here? He had no answer. He had no right to all the grace and bounty of this world, earned and maintained by the work, the devotion, the faithfulness of its people. Paradise is for those who make paradise. He did not belong. He was a frontiersman, one of a breed who had denied their past, their history. The settlers of Anaris had turned their backs on the old world and its past, opted for the future only. But as surely as the future becomes the past, the past becomes the future. To deny, to deny is not to achieve. The Odonians who left Urus had been wrong, wrong in their desperate courage to destroy their history, to forego the possibility of return. The explorer who will not come back or send back his ships to tell his tale is not an explorer, only an adventurer, and his sons are born in exile. As surely as the future becomes the past, the past becomes the future. That should, of course, make you think of the simultaneity principle, right? And his theories about time. That should also remind you of the way the chapters are sequenced in this book, right? Um, uh, good. Nancy was noticing the same thing about the fort, which is also still here. Um, so Nancy, right, you can, you can pursue that further. You know, ask the interesting question. What does the furniture in this room have to do, have in common with the Fort at Drio, right? Anyway. Um, yeah, uh, Nancy thinks that that last sentence might be her favorite sentence of all. The Odonians who left Urus had been wrong. Think about this acknowledgement by Shevik in relationship to the position he took in the argument with Tyrion at the end of chapter 2, right? We don't leave Anaris because we are Anaris, he says, right? It was about identity. Just as Tyrion can pretend to be somebody else because he might like to imagine what it is like to be somebody else, he's always play-acting, Tyrion is. Um, but you can't. You can't leave your own skin, right? Shevik, remember Shevik telling Tyrion that? Um, he made their presence, he made out their presence on Anaris to be funda a fundamental part of who they were, of their, of their core identity, right? Um, and now he's saying the Odonians who left Urus had been wrong. 
wrong in their desperate courage, wrong to deny their history, to forego the possibility of return. So, Kate, another question they could be asking here, right, is where is home? Is Urus their home? Can they go home? Right? Um, if you don't go home, you're not an explorer. You're an exile. Kate Neville says, which is home, the past or the future? Well, just as the future becomes the past, so the past becomes the future, right? Both simultaneously, right, Kate? Definitely. Um, so what does this mean for him? What does this suggest about his society, about his relationship with his society? We'll keep pursuing this. Um, we'll keep pursuing this next time. Um, you're right, Kate. Neville says, of course, uh, Uros and Anaris circle each other, right? Yeah, they do. Okay, um, we'll continue this next time. There's more on the Shevik solitude and the question of his solitude and his identity, uh, his isolation that I want to keep looking at. Um, go back and review the conversation between him and Gavarb when he meets his mom, or not Gavarb, um, uh, Rulag, his mom, when he has the fever and he comes out of the fever and he meets his mom. Go back and review that scene. Um, um, and the other, other moments I particularly want you to review. Of course, the conversation that he has with um, uh, Takver, his partner, um, when they choose the bond. Um, yeah. We'll look at that stuff. And then, of course, I want to move on after we finish talking about that to talking about Badap and Badap's theories slash revelations about Anaris and Anaresti culture. So we'll look at that next time. Um, <clears throat> we'll look at those things, and then we'll get to um, and what happened to Tyrion. Yeah, we'll definitely talk about that, Neil. Absolutely. We'll talk about what happened to Tyrion. Um, so we'll, we'll look at those things next time. Remember, no new reading. And you can keep reading if you want. I'm not saying you can't read, but we're not going to talk about anything new. We're gonna, we're gonna, we've got plenty of stuff still to talk about uh, in uh, in these last couple chapters. So, and please, if you have any questions or topics that you would like to talk about or observations that you'd like to make, please do um, send me an email, and uh, I'll try to incorporate. We'll see if we get a chance to incorporate some of those things. Uh, in class next time too. I'm also hoping that I don't have. Thank you for bearing with me during the weird outages that I had here this evening, and uh, I hope uh, that won't happen again. Anyway, thanks very much, everybody, and I will, uh, I will talk to you. I will see you guys next week at the latest. Bye now.